0: Hi everyone, it's John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, and we like to think of ourselves as caffeine for the curious. Most fans of rock music, especially those who follow the oldies, know the words and the meaning to the Don McLean song American Pie, a song that features this chorus. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry, and good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing This'll be the day that I die. If you're just hearing those words for the first time, Don McClain was expressing the thought that the day American musician and singer Buddy Holly died, on february third, nineteen fifty nine, the music died as well. The music, in the mind of Don McLean, I believe, meaning the innocent days of rock and roll of the 50s days that heralded a teenage awakening to a style of music that was uniquely theirs a rocking rolling beat that combined blues rockabilly teen passions and bop into an art form that has never been beaten for its entertainment value at that day american rock and roll died along with buddy holly 50s music was mostly about songs of love and loss it was simple clear, and usually understandable, and with the exception of the slow dance songs, it had a good beat. McLean's good old boys drinking whiskey and rye, by the time he wrote that song in 1971, had been, in many communities at least, replaced by a generation of light and heavy drug users. The Chevy that they drove to the levee was being challenged by foreign imports that threatened in the 70s and 80s to kill the American market once dominated by GM and Ford. Miss American Pie, the innocent girl next door in 1959, was now, 12 years later, unmarried and pregnant. Elvis had joined the military. Vietnam was collapsing and sending home a whole new generation of users and cynics. And the Rolling Stones and the drug culture that surrounded them and the rest of the rock world provided a stark contrast to the way things were. And the words... That'll Be the Day I Die, framed the chorus for Buddy Holly's strangely prophetic hit song. McLean's song, The Day the Music Died, is full of rich metaphors that compare the times that changed so completely in the years between 1959 and 1971. You could write a thesis on the meaning behind the words of this song, and some people have. It was well thought out and definitely a scathing report on society. To Our Story At the time, Holly and his band, consisting of Waylon Jennings, Tommy Alsop, and Carl Bunch, were playing on the Winter Dance Party Tour across the Midwest. Buddy had parted with the Crickets the year before, and for this tour he needed good talent. Waylon was 20 years old and just getting started in the business, but he had talent and could sing and play guitar as well. Tommy Alsop was 29, experienced, and would later go on to a storied career with a number of famous bands. Carl Bunch, another Texan, was a drummer who, like Wayne and Tommy, had been hired by Buddy Holly as his backup band for this winter tour. Rising artist Richie Labamba Bamba Valens, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson, and Dion and the Belmonts had joined the tour as well. It was to be the tour from hell. In fact, they were calling it the winter tour from hell. The long journeys between venues on board the cold, uncomfortable tour buses adversely affected the performers with cases of flu and even frostbite in the case of Carl Bunch. After stopping at Clear Lake, Iowa to perform and frustrated by the lousy conditions, Holly chose to charter a plane to reach their next venue in Moorhead, Minnesota. Richardson, who had the flu, swapped places with Waylon Jennings, taking his seat on the plane, while Alsop lost his seat to Valens on a coin toss. Before the plane left, they traded friendly barbs, Richardson jokingly telling Waylon Jennings "well i hope your old bus freezes up" as they parted and Waylon wishing JP a plane crash that would haunt Waylon for years the tour had begun in milwaukee wisconsin on january 23 1959 the amount of travel soon became a logistical problem the distances between venues had not been properly considered when the performances were scheduled Instead of circling around the Midwest to each town, the tour zigzagged with distances between cities, sometimes over 400 miles. General Artists Corporation, the organization that had booked the tour, later received considerable criticism for their seemingly total disregard for the conditions they forced the touring musicians to endure. Buddy Holly historian Bill Greig said, They didn't care. It was like they threw darts at a map. The Tour from Hell, that's what they named it. And it's not a bad name. The entire company of musicians traveled together in one bus, although the buses used for the tour were wholly inadequate, breaking down and being replaced with astounding frequency. Historian Bill Griggs estimated that five separate buses were used in the first 11 days of the tour. Reconditioned school buses, not good enough for school kids, he said. The artists themselves were responsible for loading and unloading equipment at each stop, as no road crew assisted them. Adding to the disarray, the buses were not equipped for the weather which consisted of waist-deep snow in several areas and varying temperatures from the 20s to as low as minus 36 degrees Fahrenheit. One bus had a heating system that broke down shortly after the tour began in Appleton, Wisconsin. Later, Richardson and Valens began experiencing flu-like symptoms and drummer Bunch was hospitalized for severely frostbitten feet after the tour bus simply broke down in the middle of the highway in sub-zero temperatures near Ironwood, Michigan. The musicians replaced that bus with another school bus and kept traveling. After Bunch was hospitalized, Carlo Mistrangelo of the Belmonts took over the drumming duties. When Dion and the Belmonts were performing, the drum seat was taken by either Valens or Holly. As Holly's group had been the backing band for all of the acts, Holly, Valens, and Dion DiMucci took turns playing drums for each other at the performances in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Clear Lake, Iowa. On Monday, February 2nd, the tour arrived in Clear Lake, having driven 350 miles from the previous day's concert in Green Bay. The town had not been a scheduled stop, but the tour promoters, hoping to fill an open date, called the manager of the local Surf Ballroom. Carol Anderson, and offered him the show. He accepted, and they set the show for that night. By the time Holly arrived at the venue that evening, he was frustrated with the ongoing problems with the bus. The next scheduled destination after Clear Lake was Moorhead, Minnesota, a three hundred and sixty five mile drive north and northwest, and, reflecting the poor planning, a journey that would take them directly back through the two towns they had already played in within the last week. No let-up after that was in sight, as the following day they were scheduled to travel back almost directly south to Sioux City, Iowa. A 325-mile trip. So Holly decided to charter a plane to take his band and him to Fargo, North Dakota, which is adjacent to Moorhead. The rest of the party would have picked him up in Moorhead, saving him the journey in the bus and leaving him time to get some rest. Anderson called Hubert Jerry Dwyer, owner of the Dwyer Flying Service, a company in Mason City, to charter the plane to fly to Hector Airport in Fargo, the closest one to Moorhead. Flight arrangements were made with Roger Peterson, a 21-year-old local pilot described as a young married man who built his life around flying. The Flying Service charged a fee of $36 per passenger for the flight on the 1947 single-engine V-tailed Beechcraft 35 Bonanza which could seat three passengers plus the pilot. Valens, who once had a fear of flying, asked Alsup for a seat on the plane. The two agreed to toss a coin to decide. Bob Hale, a disc jockey with Mason City's K R I B A M, was working the concert that night and flipped the coin in the ballroom's side stage room shortly before the musicians departed for the airport. Valens won the coin toss for the seat on the flight. After the show ended, Anderson drove Holly, Ballins, and J.P. Richardson to the Mason City Municipal Airport. The weather at the time of departure was reported as light snow, a ceiling of 3,000 feet with sky obscured, visibility 6 miles, and winds from 20 to 30 miles per hour. Although deteriorating weather was reported along the planned route, the weather briefings Peterson received failed to relay the information. Hi, everyone. just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. The plane took off normally from runway 17, today's runway 18, at 12.55 a.m. Central Time on Tuesday, February 3rd. Dwyer witnessed the takeoff from a platform outside the control tower. He was able to see clearly the aircraft's taillight for most of the brief flight, which started with an initial left turn onto a northwesterly heading and it climbed 800 feet. The taillight was then observed, gradually descending until it disappeared out of view. Around 1 a.m., when Peterson failed to make the expected radio contact, repeated attempts to establish communication were made at Dwyer's request by the radio operator, but they were all unsuccessful. Later that morning, Dwyer, having heard no word from Peterson since his departure took off in another airplane to retrace his planned route. Within minutes, at around 9.35 a.m., he spotted the wreckage less than six miles northwest of the airport. The sheriff's office, alerted by Dwyer, dispatched Deputy Bill McGill, who drove to the crash site, a cornfield belonging to Albert Jewell. The Bonanza had impacted terrain at high speed, estimated to have been around 170 miles per hour. Banked steeply to the right, and in a nose-down attitude. The right wing tip had struck the ground first, sending the aircraft cartwheeling across the frozen field for 540 feet before coming to rest against a wire fence at the edge of Jules' property. The bodies of Holly and Ballins had been ejected from the torn fuselage and lay near the plane's wreckage. Richardson's body had been thrown over the fence and into the cornfield of Jules' neighbor, Oscar Moffat, while Peterson's body was entangled in the wreckage. With the rest of the entourage en route to Minnesota, Anderson, who had driven the party to the airport and witnessed the plane's takeoff, had to identify the bodies of the musicians. County Coroner Ralph Smiley certified that all four victims died instantly, citing the cause of death as gross trauma to brain for the three artists and brain damage for the pilot. Buddy Holly's pregnant wife, Maria Elena, sadly, learned of his death from the reports on television. A widow, after only six months of marriage, she suffered a miscarriage shortly after, reportedly due to psychological trauma. Holly's mother, on hearing the news on the radio at home in Lubbock, Texas, screamed and collapsed. Holly's widow did not attend the funeral and has never visited the gravesite. She later said in an interview, In a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant and wanted Buddy to stay with me, but he had scheduled that tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him, and I blame myself because I know that if I had only gone along, Buddy never would have gotten into that airplane. I have read since that the laws were changed after that incident with Maria Elena, with Buddy Holly's wife, regarding rules that were set in place that the press cannot release information like that with names until... The relatives have been notified. The Winter Dance Party tour did not stop. Jennings and Alsop continued performing for two more weeks, with Jennings taking Holly's place as lead singer. Meanwhile, the funerals of the victims were being held individually. Holly and Richardson were buried in Texas, Valens in California, and Peterson in Iowa. Fans of Holly, Valens, and Richardson have been gathering for annual memorial concerts at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake since 1979. The 50th anniversary concert took place on February 2nd, 2009 with Delbert McClinton, Joe Eli, Wanda Jackson, Los Lobos, Los Lonely Boys, Chris Montez, Bobby V, Graham Nash, Peter and Gordon, Tommy Alsop, and a house band featuring Chuck Lavelle, James Hutch Hitchenson, Bobby Keys, and Kenny Aronoff. J.P. Richardson, the son of the Big Bopper, was among the participating artists and Bob Hale was the master of ceremonies, as he was at the 1959 concert. In June of 88, a four-foot-tall granite memorial bearing the names of Peterson and the three entertainers was dedicated outside the surf ballroom with Peterson's widow, parents, and sister in attendance. The event marked the first time that the families of Holly, Richardson, Valens, and Peterson had gathered together. In 1989, Ken Paquette, a Wisconsin fan of the 1950s era, made a stainless steel monument that depicts a guitar and a set of three records bearing the names of the three performers killed in the accident. The monument is on private farmland about a quarter mile west of the intersection of 315th Street and Gull Avenue, north of Clear Lake, Iowa. Paquette also created a similar stainless steel monument to the three musicians located outside the Riverside Ballroom in Green Bay, Wisconsin where Holly, Richardson, and Valens played their second-to-last show on the night of February 1, 1959. This second memorial was unveiled on July 17, 2003. In February of 2009, a further memorial made by Paquette for Peterson was unveiled at the crash site. A large plasma-cut steel set of Wayfarer-style glasses constructed by Michael Connor of Clear Lake, similar to those Holly wore, sits at the access point to the crash site. A road originating near the surf ballroom extending north and passing to the west of the crash site is now known as Buddy Holly Place. Should you ever get out that way, please send our respects to all who perished and their families. They made tracks in music that will never be forgotten. Coming soon, a special episode from 1001 Stories for the Road talking about all the performers who have died in plane crashes. It's way more than you might think. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. We hope you take time to catch our other three 1001 shows. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Radio Days. We left a bunch of links to our show at Apple, CastBox, and others in the show notes for you. We're also a proud member of the Recorded History Network at www.recordedhistory.net. And if you happen to be a fan of the West, check the Dr. History Podcast. That's Dr. spelled D-R period. Featuring Tales of the Old West with Ken Turner and his radio sidekick and rodeo star, Zeb Bell, who, by the way, has invited me as a guest on his radio show next week to talk about a favorite subject of mine, Tom Horn. And I'll run that interview as a special episode here in a few weeks, provided I don't mess up. This is live radio, remember. Anyway, check out the Dr. History Podcast, for some great Western episodes. That's it for today. We'll see you next week.